I don't know whether movie etiquette is a common subject to conversation in your home, but it is in mine. What are the appropriate ways to relate to one another and to act when a movie is on? What should the expectations be? We have this conversation often. My wife has poor movie etiquette. And I mean that in the most play, playful sense. Because I do too. We have our own quirks when it comes to movies. So when we turn on a movie, my wife thinks that movies are social affairs. We get five minutes into a movie and she turns around and goes, hmm, so I was talking to my mom this week. And I'm like, you got him, we're watching a movie. She's breaking etiquette. Or my wife needs no movie closure. She can watch a two-hour movie all the way up to the hour and 55-minute mark and go to bed. She needs no closure. She doesn't need to know how it ends. And that is utterly unfathomable to me. But if she were standing up here, she would say that neither one of those compared to my movie quirk. And that is within the first five to ten minutes of any movie that we watch, I wiki the plot. I know how the whole movie is going to play out before I even make it to minute number 10. And it drives her crazy. But I find that that makes the movie all the more enjoyable because I know exactly how it's going to play out. I love seeing how all of these parts are put together to come to that end. It's just kind of, you know, a viewer omniscience that I enjoy having. Well, the same, or at least maybe not the same, but similarly... This is what John is doing as he's writing down revelations given to him by Christ in the Spirit to the churches. That he wants to give them an idea about things to come. He is, in a sense, wickying the plot for them. So that they would remain faithful to Christ all the way to the end, regardless of what comes in this life. He wants them to live now in light of the end. Right now is my, every, every holiday season I read a fiction series. This time around I'm reading from Thanksgiving to New Year's Day. I'm reading The Lord of the Rings. And I started with The Hobbit this week and I'll work my way and I'll finish The Return of the King on New Year's Day. And, and I saw something there I had never thought about before. And it's all in light of just Revelation 21 and what we're talking about. And right before Bilbo and the 12 elves go into the forest on their way to the Lonely Mountain, Gandalf is going to leave them. And this is what he says. Because they're really worried about how are we going to make it without a wizard. And this is what he says. He says, cheer up, Bilbo. Don't look so glum. I'm sure that's exactly how he sounds. Cheer up, Thorin and company. This is your expedition after all. This is the journey that you're on, he's saying. Think of the treasure at the end. And forget the forest and forget the dragon, at least until tomorrow. What he was saying is that I'm not saying that there's not going to be a forest that's going to be difficult and there's not going to be a dragon that's going to need to be defeated. What I'm saying is that your attitude toward these things have to be governed and shaped by your knowledge of the treasure that waits you at the end. And that's exactly what John is doing, the Apostle John in Revelation 21 and 22. That he wants believers to know about this treasure that is stored up for them in the end and he wants them to consider all of the dark forests and the dragons in between. And he goes, yes, they're real. 
But it's worth going through all of that to get to the treasure. Persevere. That's what, that's what the revelation is really all about. It's really, at the end, not about mysterious symbols and imagery, though they're helpful in understanding who God is. Revelation, just like every other book in the Bible, is about God. And it's to help his people get a vision of him in such a way that they would be able to faithfully endure in this life all the way to the end. In fact, in Revelation 21, he calls such people conquerors. And it's to them that he gives eternal life and the inheritance of the new heavens and the new earth. So with that in mind, here's really the big idea of the text. I want you to keep it in mind as I read through it. Revelation 21, verses 1 to 8. That the promise of God, or the promise of dwelling with God forever in a new creation helps us remain faithful to Christ in this life. The promise of dwelling with God forever in a new creation helps us remain faithful to Christ in this life. Let me say it one more time. The promise of dwelling with God forever in a new creation helps us remain faithful to Christ in this life. Revelation 21 verses 1 through 8 are easily broken up into essentially two main sections. And you can see that there on the back of your bulletin. I gave you the outline. You can follow along if that's helpful for your note taking or you want to write that down inside your Bible. But really there's two main sections. The first section verses 1 through 4. We're going to consider this, that dwelling with God is our goal. The dwelling with God is our goal. That second section, verses 5 through 8, is an exhortation, listen to God and conquer. And you can see how the path that we're going to take through this. So you can follow along by holding on to your bulletin there. But follow along with me. Revelation 21, verses 1 through 8. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. And to the one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. This is the word of the Lord. 
Seems like an odd Advent passage, doesn't it? After all, we're celebrating during this season, reflecting upon the incarnation of Christ, that the birth of the Messiah. So why are we in Revelation 21? Simply, when we think about Christ's advent, that is his appearing, really what we're thinking about between two advents, that is his incarnation as a child, and then from cradle all the way to a cross, to his coming again in power and glory, what we are really talking about in all of that is one singular event. It is the inauguration and the consummation of the kingdom of God. And so we don't think about it as two separate events that are somewhat related. We think about it as one event in two stages. And so it is entirely appropriate that we think about the return of Christ during an Advent season every bit as much as we think about the birth of Christ. Because in his birth, he inaugurated something that here we see in Revelation 21 is going to be consummated. It's going to be completed. And it's all one work being done by God through the Son, by the power of the Spirit, in and through his people among the nations. So here in Revelation 21, we see a new Creation. We see the goal of ultimately all that Christ is doing, beginning with all the promises in the Old Testament, fulfilled in his coming and consummated at his return. And really, we're going to see two things in these first four verses. We're going to see, first of all, a perfected kingdom. That's going to be in verses 1 and 2. And then we're going to see a populated kingdom in verses 3 and 4. You can follow along, as I said, on the back of our bulletin. Some of you, I know, enjoy watching home renovation shows. And if you say you don't like Chip and Jojo, I know you're lying. Everybody likes Chip and Jojo. And I know about all your secret escapades to Waco, even though you're too embarrassed to tell anybody that you loved it. But you love home renovations. And we all do, because there's something, not so much about the homes themselves, but there's something really fascinating. There's something woven deeply, I think, into our very souls about seeing things that are old and dilapidated, who have been, who have been ravaged and not cared for, and to see it torn down to its bones, and to see it rebuilt into something brand new and glorious. We love that. And that's exactly what we see in Revelation 21. It is God's renovation of the cosmos in Christ. We're going to see out with the old and we're going to see in with the new. In fact, in chapters 18 through 20, we're going to see out with the old. We're going to see Babylon, also referred to as the prostitute, that city that encompasses all of godless civilization is going to be destroyed, followed by the beast and the false prophet and Satan all being thrown in the lake of, the fi in the lake of fire. That's chapters 18 through 20. It's out with the old. And then we see here at the very beginning in chapter 21, verse 1, in with the new. I saw a new heaven and I saw a new earth. Why does he see a new heaven and a new earth? Well, he tells us in verse 1, for or because the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. We see that if we glance up in chapter 20, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne in him who is seated on it. 
And from his presence, earth and sky fled away and there was no place to be found for them. God's holiness is unveiled and revealed in its fullness. And the sin-cursed creation has no choice but to flee away from God in his holy presence. And what it does in fleeing is it makes way for something altogether new. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Well, what do we expect to happen to this earth? When we talk about this earth passing away, what do we mean? Generally speaking, there's three views, and this is well beyond the scope of my time this morning. We can't get to all the various nuances, but there's three general views as to what's going to happen to this earth. The first is this idea of renewal, and that's partially true, that heaven is just this earth with some of the rough edges smoothed out. A little bit more ethical, a little bit more loving. We'll get there eventually. But I think what John sees is more than just a mere polishing job. Then there's others on the opposite extreme that, that understand what happens to this earth, this heavens, and these are the, where we live now as total annihilation. That the cosmos is going to be utterly obliterated by God, and he's going to start a new one, ex nihilo, from scratch, out of nothing. Well, I don't think that's what the Bible teaches either, though there is a genuine newness to it. I'm going to take more of a middle way. I think it's most faithful to what we see in the Bible. And that is that we are going to see transformation. That is destruction without annihilation. The earth does not cease to exist, but it is going to be stripped down to its studs, so to speak. And something altogether new is going to be built in its place. We catch a glimpse of this. In 2 Peter chapter 3, put your finger there in Revelation 21 and go to your left. 2 Peter chapter 3. Beginning in verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar... And the heavenly bodies, or some of your translations say the elements, will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed or laid bare. Some of your translations may even say be burned up. Since all of these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt and burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. At first glance, we look at Second Peter chapter 3 and it seems like wholesale destruction and annihilation, doesn't it? Total obliteration. But we notice in verse 13 that that's not, in fact, the case because no less than two things remain. We see, first of all, that his promise remains. And we see, second of all, that we who are waiting remain. That is, that all things are destroyed, but yet it is down to its very studs. And we see the kingdom of God remaining. That is, the word of God and the people of God making their way through all of this destruction. And that is because the kingdom of God has already been inaugurated. 
It has already been inaugurated in Christ and those who are united to him, that is in the church. And so that which has been inaugurated will not be annihilated. It will make its way through the destruction and it will be what remains in the end. We'll see that in just a minute, so hang with me. But if we look elsewhere in the Bible, we notice that God has already given us a pattern for what this looks like. He is going to essentially wipe the slate clean just like he did in the days of Noah. In fact, I think this is the point that Peter makes in verses 5 through 7 because he goes and he points to Noah as well. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the word that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. That what we see with Noah is a flood that destroys but doesn't annihilate. There is a remnant that is preserved. And so Noah, as we see in Genesis chapter 9, is a type of Adam. All of the same commissions given to Adam in the garden were given to Noah. You need to be fruitful, you need to multiply, you need to exercise dominion. He is a type of the Adam that was, pointing back to the Adam in the garden, but he's also a type of a better Adam yet to come. And that is a type of Christ. That Christ is our greater and better Noah. And so the new heavens and the new earth is going to be qualitatively different, and yet it's, it's going to be the same. That God has given us a pattern in Noah for what he's going to do in the better Noah, in the greater Noah, that is Christ, the second Adam. And so this earth will be our heaven. It will be a physical place that we will physically embody. It's not going to be some ethereal existence where we all run around in our Casper the Friendly Ghost spirit bodies looking for harps to play. That is in heaven. Heaven is a fully embodied experience in a new heavens and a new earth, deeply relational, deeply sensual, not merely spiritual. It will be a physical place, but... Everything in this heaven and this earth that, that is opposed to God's kingdom is going to be destroyed. Everything that is associated with God's kingdom is going to remain. And the entire cosmos is going to end up being transformed morally and physically. You say, well, what do you mean physically? Is there going to be golf? Will there be Chick-fil-A? Maybe not after last week. But perhaps. Will I be able to swim where there be Close relationships, whether it be all the things that I enjoy in this life and that life, only with much more joy and so on and so forth. Well, listen, the Bible doesn't say. Because the Bible isn't primarily concerned in the physical transformation and all of the goodies that we get in the new heavens and the new earth, though I think it'll be very similar to this, yet not without, yet without a curse of sin. The Bible is primarily concerned with moral transformation. That there will be no more sea. And that's what we see at the end of verse 1 in Revelation 21. Go back to that. Revelation 21. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth passed away and the sea was no more. You say, wait a minute. I like seas. I like jet skiing. I like going to the beach. Well, he's not talking about a literal sea. This is symbolic, much like we find in the rest of Revelation 21. 
Because for Israel, the sea wasn't a place of peace, but it was a place of chaos and of conflict. You might think about being out on the Mediterranean like Paul and getting shipwrecked. Or the disciples on the Sea of Galilee when the storms come. Violent squalls would roll into Israel off of the Mediterranean and they would see it coming in all of its violent force. Not only would storms come from the seas, but foreign enemies would come from the sea. In fact, in Revelation 18, we discovered that the ungodly traders of Babylon come by ships from the sea. The sea is a place of chaos and of conflict. Why no more sea? Because in a new heavens, in a new earth, where all of the old has passed away, there is no more chaos, there is no more conflict. The new heavens and the new earth will be truly, in every way, a Sabbath land, a land of rest in Christ. There will be no more sea. Because everything, the whole cosmos, will be morally transformed according to the glory of Christ. Well, we not only see a new heaven and a new earth in verse 1, but we also, in verse 2, see a new city. And I saw the holy city in New Jerusalem, coming down from heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. What he's talking about here is not something different from the new heavens and the new earth, or it's not something contained within the new heavens and the new earth. When he's describing the new Jerusalem, he is describing in another way the new heavens and the new earth. This should be familiar to us because of our time spent over this fall in Isaiah. That we see that God is committed to transforming old sinful Jerusalem into a faithful city. Into a city for his own glory, into Zion, at the top of a mountain that will be higher than every other mountain, from which the word of God will resound and the nations will flow upward supernaturally by the grace of God. That is the new Jerusalem. That the new creation is no less than the city of God populated by the people of God who have been redeemed by his grace. And so he's using different imagery to describe the same Thing. And we see here that this new Jerusalem is adorned as a bride. And this is really important in the overall narrative of the book of Revelation. Because in Revelation 12 and following, it gets a little messy. Beginning in chapter 12, you kind of see the whole second half of Revelation is kind of like a play. You've got a stage, you've got actors, and they're all coming onto the stage. And a number of characters are all coming on at various times and even at the same time. And so in Revelation 12, we meet our first character. That's a, a woman with her child. That's the church and the Lord. And then we're introduced to the dragon. That is the devil. Then the first beast and the second beast. That's the false prophet. And then the prostitute. That's the city of Babylon, which we've already talked about. And then by Revelation 16, everyone is on the stage together. And there's a flurry of activity. And then all of a sudden from there, one by one, they begin to peel away. Then in chapter 18, Babylon is destroyed. In chapter 19, the beast and the false prophet are thrown in the lake of fire. And then in chapter 20, the devil is thrown in the lake of fire. And then when you get to Revelation 21, only one character is remaining on the stage of world history. And it's the church. It's the woman. She's the only one remaining. And she is adorned as a bride for her husband. All of this has been God's aim to make... Her beautiful for himself on that day. 
Every institution in this world will pass away. Every institution. The United States of America will not last. It's a grand experiment. But it's a temporary institution. Every world government, even the institution of marriage, is temporary, according to Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. But there's one institution that will remain forever, and that is the church. Everything else is a contingency. The church is a certainty. That is what we see by the time we get to Revelation 21, that the bride of Christ is the only one remaining. If any of you are into kind of like WWE wrestling and all those kind of things, it's kind of like that when they clash, they bring all the wrestlers, I don't know what it's called, when they bring all the wrestlers into the ring and they all fight each other until there's one left standing and that's the church with Christ. That's Revelation 21. The church wins because of Christ. We get to hold up the belt and we get the mic and we get the glory with Christ. We're the last man standing. Well, in these two chapters, Revelation 21 and 22, what you'll see as we go through it in the, in the next few weeks is that there's really not a whole lot about heaven, but there's a whole lot about the church. What is God doing in the world? God, according to Revelation 21-2, is building and adorning his church for this day. Every institution will pass away but the church. So the question that we need to ask ourselves is, are we about what God is about? You know, in our own evangelical subculture, it's really popular to say, well, I'm a Christ, I want to be Christ-centered. I want to be gospel-centered. But do you understand when you get to the end of the gospel to be Christ-centered and to be gospel-centered is to be centered on the thing that Christ and the gospel itself are centered on, and that is the bride to be adorned for God on that day. To be Christ-centered and to be gospel-centered is to be church-centered because the church is at the center of everything that God is doing in the world. She is the one for whom he has laid down his life. Christ has purchased her with his blood. We are precious to him and he is building us and adorning us by adding to our number day by day through the proclamation of the gospel among the nations, every tribe, tongue and nation until the day that we are ready to be presented to him in glory. Are we about what God is about? Or is the church more kind of peripheral? Is the church something that oh, maybe you'll show up once in a while when you want to partake of some spiritual goods and services to better your life, to be a little less angry, to be a little more happy, to have some friends, maybe to meet a spouse, whatever it may be? Or do you see this church and every faithful gospel preaching church as an expression, as a localized expression of God's redemptive work in the world. The church is the engine of all of God's redemptive purposes. And we see that at the end of Revelation 21. God is about his church. He's going to get glory by populating his kingdom with the church. And that's what we see in verses 3 and 4 is a populated kingdom. We see now in verses 1 and 2 the perfected kingdom. 
But now in verses 3 and 4, we're going to see that perfect kingdom populated. Look at verse 3. And then I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. What we see here is a fulfillment of God's covenant promise. One key organizing principle in the scripture is the idea of a covenant especially the covenant of grace. This is a covenant of grace that was revealed, first of all, in Genesis 3 to Adam. And there will be a seed of the woman that will crush a serpent's head. And it's revealed further to Abraham when God called him out of his home. And he says, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to make you a blessing for all nations. And then he reiterates this covenant in Genesis 17 and elaborates on it. And in Genesis 17, he says, I'm going to give this land to your people and I will be God to you and to your offspring. I will be their God. You see what John's doing now? He's borrowing this Old Testament language that's rooted in covenant promises. And so most foundationally, God's covenant, his covenant of grace is about one thing. And it's not about land. It's not even about being justified and declared righteous in Christ, though all those things perhaps might be true in the new heavens and the new earth and are standing righteous in Christ. It is ultimately about God being God to his people. The goal of the gospel is us being with God. That's what we see here in the first few verses. So that is what got revealed to Abraham in Genesis 17. And then it's revealed further in Exodus chapter 6. In the Exodus, he says, I'm going to redeem you and I'm going, to, I'm going to take you to be my people and I will be your God. And then after he redeems them and he brings them to the foot of Sinai and he gives them the law, the law repeats it again. I'm going to make my dwelling among you. I'm going to walk among you and I will be your God and you will be my people. Well, we know if we read the rest of the Old Testament that Israel didn't do real well in obeying God according to his law. And yet, even in spite of their disobedience, God repeats again the promise. Jeremiah 7, as Israel is facing down a Babylonian threat due to their sin, and he says, Jeremiah 7, I will be your God, I will be your God and you will be my people. Then he repeats it again in Jeremiah 11, Jeremiah 30, and Jeremiah 31. And then, even after they're exiled into Babylon, he repeats it again through the prophet Ezekiel in the promise of the new covenant, saying, you will be my people and I will be your God. And even then, while in exile through Hosea, he commands the prophet Hosea to name one of his sons, not my people. And this is the worst curse that can fall on a people. It's the anti-covenant. You will not be my people. You will be estranged from me. And so all through the Old Testament is this promise. And it's revealed more and more and more. Kind of like, you know, kind of like you see a flower begin to unfold until the coming of Christ. When it's revealed in all of its fullness. Because in Christ we see something unique happen. Look at verse 3 again in, in Revelation 21. It says the dwelling place of God. Some of your translations may say tabernacle there. It's the same word that John uses in John chapter 1 verse 14. When he talks about Jesus coming and dwelling among us, he says he tabernacled among us. What was the tabernacle in the Old Testament? It was the place where the glory of God dwelled with the people of God. Well, Jesus is the true and better tabernacle who has come as a true Israel in perfect obedience to the law, and it is God with us. He is Emmanuel. So the tabernacle is where God dwelled with his people. 
You may remember this is why Moses had to take such great pains to make the tabernacle just as he saw it on the mountain because it was supposed to be a pattern of what heaven was like, of God dwelling with his people. That the tabernacle and the temple were a picture of heaven on earth. And so he made this tabernacle because this would be where the glory of God's presence would dwell. Well, that gave way to the better tabernacle that is Christ. He came and tabernacled among us. He's the better tabernacle. He dwelled with us. That's why when you get to the end of Revelation 21 in verse 22, glance down at that, John sees no temple. Why? Because there's another temple. See that verse 22? The temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. We don't need a temple because heaven is here and God is dwelling with his people. And his presence is not mediated by a priest, but the great high priest to whom we have now been united is the only one mediating the presence of God and it permeates us. And every aspect of our existence is the new Jerusalem and the bride adorned for her God. Radiant with the glory of God. Enjoying and dwelling in the presence of God. And so our fundamental problem in life which is going to be remedied on that last day, is that we are alienated from God. This means that we have to make sure that we tell the story of the gospel right. Because the goal of the gospel is God. He is the good news. The kingdom of God is not about a certain kind of political ethic. It's not about a spirit of love or a spirit of forgiveness. The kingdom of God is centered on a king. And the gospel is not merely that God is going to make this world a better place so that he sent Jesus to show us how to do that by being kind and loving and accepting and so on and so forth. Our fundamental problem is that we are alienated from God and the best part of the good news of the gospel is that sinners can dwell with God because Christ in his atonement on a cross has paid the penalty of their sin and has opened the way for them to be reconciled to the Father. That's the good news of the gospel. It's at the very heart. If that is not part of our gospel, that we get to dwell with God, that the goal of the gospel is our dwelling with God, being with him where he is our God and we are his people, then it's not the full gospel that we're telling. John is giving them the plot. He's wickying the, pot, the plot for them. He's going, this is the climax. This is where everything is heading. If you want to know what the goal of the gospel is, read this. Know this. The goal of the gospel is that we get to dwell with God. If you were to ask anybody here, what's the best part of being married, especially if they're recently married? They're not going to say perhaps what any number of single people might think they would say. You know, it's not marital intimacy. It's not good home-cooked meals, it's not any of those things. If you were to ask any married person, what was the best part about being married? They would say, it's because I don't have to say goodbye anymore. That I don't have to tell Kathy at three o'clock in the morning, babe, you got to get off the phone, I can't talk to you anymore. We need to go to bed. That I don't have to turn around and go back to my place and you don't have to turn around and go back to your place. We get to dwell together. Now listen, there's all kinds of good things that come along with marriage, but none of those things make a difference. They don't, they don't really mean anything. Be, 
if they're not connected ultimately and fulfill the enjoyment of the one that you're married to. Because the best part of marriage isn't the benefits of marriage. The best part of marriage is being with the one that you're married to. To dwell with them and to be with them. To be united to them. To enjoy them. And if you want all the good things of marriage, but you don't want to be with your spouse, then you really don't want to be married. Similarly, if you want all the good things of heaven, good food, no more pain, loved ones, etc., but you don't really think much or really care much to be with Jesus, well, then you may not be a Christian. That's the goal of the gospel. The best part of the good news of Christianity is that we get to be with God. The good things of the new creation are all a result and a consequence of God dwelling with us and we will enjoy them, but our enjoyment of those things will only consummate, increase, and lead to our enjoyment of God dwelling with us forever. We don't celebrate gifts apart from giver. Gifts lead us to giver. The giver is what it's all about in Revelation 21. And that's what we see in verse 4. And it's the reason why verse 4 follows verse 3. So we just saw in verse 3 that God will dwell with his people. But notice here in verse 4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death will be no more. And neither will they be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. He will wipe away every tear. There will be no more stillbirths. There will be no more sick kids. There will be no more suicides. No more anxiety. No more panic attacks. No more depression. There will be no more unexplainable darkness. There will be no more tumors. There will be no more cells that turn against your body and start killing you. There will be no more tears over wayward children. There will be no more divorces, no more lies. There will be no more slanderous words or gossip. There will be no more saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because every lament we have ever prayed will pass away and be replaced by indestructible joy in God. The new creation is so indescribably glorious that we can only be given symbols and metaphors to help us understand the final Sabbath rest that we'll have in Christ. I'd point you back to the reading that Charlene did from Isaiah 65 just a few moments ago. Of all of these glorious images that describe new heavens and a new earth and the consummation and the perfection of the kingdom of God and of God dwelling with his people where all things are made new. And why will there be no more of these things? He gives us the answer at the end of verse 4. For the former things have passed away. That word former things in Greek is protos. It's where this idea of first, of first things. Proto is the idea. And the idea is that what is first is temporary and what is second is final. And this is a theme that we see throughout the Bible. The first Adam blew it. Sin came into the world, and yet that was only temporary. But the second Adam is our righteousness forever. The first death, the proto-death, leads to judgment, but the second death is eternal. 
The first covenant, that is the old covenant, was temporary. But the new covenant, the covenant of grace, is everlasting. The first heaven and the first earth will pass away. But the second heaven and the earth yet to come is forever. The former things, the first things have passed away. The second things are coming. And they'll be here forever. And we will dwell with God and he will wipe away every single tear. There's no way I'm going to finish this text. But that's okay. Because really, Revelation 21.1 all the way through 22.5 is one big text. It's all the same idea, all related to one another. So we'll just pick up where he left off next week. But I just want to conclude with the beginning of verse 5. And he who is seated on the throne, it's the same one who stood in judgment at the end of Revelation 20. The same one who spoke in verse 3 said this, Behold, I am making all things new. Friend, if you're here, do you ever wish that you could start over? Ever wish that you could just get a mulligan on life, on a relationship, on something that you've done or said? Or something that you didn't do, but should have said, but didn't. Whatever it may be. Do you ever wish that you could do things over? Do you ever look at our world and you ever think, how did we get into this mess? You need to hear, in the midst of all of that in your mind and in your heart, verse 5, I am making all things new. Is it good that we remind ourselves of this? It is. That's why Revelation 21 is here. I am making all things new. You need to hear that in the midst of all of this. You don't need a PBS special. You don't need a self-help guru. You don't need Marie Kondo. You don't need Enneagram or anything that they have to say. You don't need it. What you need to hear is what God has to say and what God is saying is I am making all things new in Christ. And he says in verse 5, again, write this down because these words are trustworthy and true. This has to be our passion. Colossians 3 says, set your minds on the things that are above, not the things that are below, because that's where Christ is. Hebrews 3, we're just like Abraham sojourning through this life and we're looking for a city whose builder and designer is God. That's where we want to get. And there's going to be dragons and there's going to be dark forests full of spiders. But there's treasure at the end. And that treasure makes all of it worth it. And God is true. And every promise that he's made, he has kept in Christ. They all find their yes and amen. And he says, you got to trust me. You can't see it yet. You see in a mirror yet dimly. Can I really believe it? My word is true. You're going to be tempted to believe that God isn't making all things new. You're going to be tempted to believe believer. You're going to be tempted to believe that you're always going to be that way. That you're always going to struggle with that sin. That you're never going to be able to overcome those negative thoughts and emotions. That your body is always going to do this, that, and the other to you and fight back and kick back against you. You're going to think it's always going to be that way, but that is short-sighted. Trust God's word. His word is true. And he promises, he promises, I'm making all things new. 
Everything else will be burned up and destroyed, but two things will persist. The promise of God and those of us who wait for God. The word of God and the people of God. That has to be what we're all about. Because that is what's going to last. That's what it is to seek first the kingdom of God.